There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here with a special Democracy Sausage, part of the ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series. This was a discussion in front of a live audience at ANU's Canberra Cultural Centre. And I was speaking with Professor Megan Davis and Professor George Williams, joint authors of the book Everything You Need to Know About the Voice. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to ANU's Canberra Centre and to this Canberra Times ANU Meet the Author event which is also, you'll be happy to know, I hope, uh, a special live broadcast of Democracy Sausage. Uh, and for those listening, I can tell you there are hundreds of people here uh, who are eager to hear about this vital new book, Everything You Need to Know About the Voice, by Megan Davis, who will be with us shortly, and George Williams, who is with us uh, now. Uh, I'm Mark Kenny, and let's meet the first of our authors, Professor George Williams. He is the Anthony Mason Professor and Scientia Professor, as well as being Deputy Vice-Chancellor at University of New South Wales. He is a columnist, author of numerous seminal law texts, and a sometime barrister in the High Court even. So welcome, George. Thank you. Good to be here. And congratulations on this book. Uh, you know, um, books are often said to be timely, but they don't get much more timely than this one in terms of the content. Uh, it's the issue du jour or issue of the year and uh, it's um, certainly one that I think people would benefit a great deal from reading because it covers so much. What was your aim in, in putting this book together with, with Megan? Uh, timely certainly the word but also I think needed is what we felt and, and something we've seen that's been really obvious over past weeks is just how Australians struggle to connect sometimes to the basic issues in the debate because there's so much misinformation out there. It's hard to make sense of what's going on. And and this has been true for a long time. I mean, referendums are diabolically difficult to win because many people can't separate fact from fiction. They don't have good authoritative places to go for information. And when people get those yes and no case pamphlets in their mail in a few weeks, and yes, it will still be via mail um, because it has to be via snail mail. That's the only way it's permitted to be sent out. There won't be neutral information. It'll just be these polarised arguments uh, for yes and no. So we wrote the book because we felt that people would want to know more and it's something that if they know more, certainly I felt people were much more likely to vote yes. It would demystify, it would explain why it's needed, explain the history. 
And it would also help with some pretty basic things, such as there was a poll not so long ago that asked Australians, do we have a written constitution? About 50% said no. So, you know, we can help with that. Yes, we do. Um, you'll pick that up on page one of the book. Um, another poll after that asked Australians, do we have a National Bill of Rights? 62% said yes. And of course, we don't have that. And so we're entering a referendum, formal campaign, where large numbers of Australians don't know the document exists that they're going to have to vote to change. And they think we have a Bill of Rights and other changes already there that you know, affect how they see the world. It says a lot that if you really want to know where people get their information, it's US cop shows in large part, and they are the driving educational force about the Australian constitution, but they are wrong. And this book is designed to provide an Australian perspective. That's very good. Now, I'm very happy to say that Professor Megan Davis has joined us as well. Um, so welcome to you, Megan. Uh, Megan, as you all know, is a Cobble Cobble woman. She's Balnave's Chair in Constitutional Law and Director of the Indigenous Law Centre at UNSW, and she's Pro Vice-Chancellor as well. She was a co-chair of the Uluru Dialogue and the first person to read out the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Thanks to, uh, for coming. Welcome to you, Megan. Thank you. I, I apologise for being late. Annie Pat's frowning at me, but Annie Pat and I have never been campaign managers. Um <laughs> And poor George has had to, we, we have an Australian Research Council project together and I'm always late to that as well. Um, so we, Pat and I are just chipping our way ahead trying to get to the referendum. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm not, it's, I'm not it's used all, to the frantic it, pace of all the things that go wrong. Yeah, that's right. Campaigns are complex things. Um, there was a, an event here last week with Virginia Halsiger, who happens to be my wife and who happens to also be chronically late. And I think Colin told me <laughs> she was here at 6.01 for the 6 o'clock start. So uh, you can imagine there was a bit of anxiety. So you, you, uh, you, you're in good cool. company. Um I want to go back to the beginning of the book, if I, if I can. There'll be some people in, in this room who will have um, had a quick look at the book. Others might have read it uh, and, and, and many may not have uh, you know, got, got to it at all yet. Uh, and it's quite comprehensive. Uh, it, it charts the history of uh, critical events leading up to you know, white invasion or the, the European invasion uh, and then what occurred since and all of the implications that had. So I thought I might go through a few of those things because – you know, they are, they are very much part of the story. So, and I, f I found this quite interesting actually when I was reading it. Uh, when James Cook was sent to this land in, in 1770, he was actually told, do not take it by conquest. Can you explain, well, I'm not sure which one of you should answer this question, but just just give us a sense of what that was about. Because I think he was, he was even told by the, the Royal Society's James Douglas, conquest over such people can give no just, uh, no just title. So there was a kind of a recognition even then, an enlightened recognition even then, that rolling up and taking the land uh, in the name of the king was, was not legi a legitimate thing to do. Of course, things changed after that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a frontier period in that you just don't swan into someone's country and take their land. There, there were rules at the time. And that's partly why he was issued with those instructions. Um, we still talk about it to this day, um, about how the land was dispossessed and the, the, the kind of 
multiple options that was, you know, at the dispense of the British Crown in terms of what they did. But in relation to Cook, yeah, he had instructions as subsequent explorers, I suppose, who came out or they were actually um, officers in the British Navy had when they came out to ensure that they legitimately took the land in a way that was consistent with the international law at the time. But that didn't happen, obviously. And no. it shows just how exceptional it was too because those instructions did play out elsewhere. So if you think of New Zealand, Treaty of Waitangi, you think of Canada, America, hundreds of yes. treaties, it's hard for people in Australia to understand just how exceptional we are, that we never had agreements with our First Peoples. The land was taken in the form it was taken and we are the odd one out amongst those other British colonies. And it need not have happened this way, but it did. And there's still a lot to be unpicked, of course, with that. There are treaties and other debates, but it's good you're starting with this in a sense because the reason we wrote the book in the way we did is many people might think the voice is a new thing. It is born out of not just decades, but centuries of history. It's a response to that history, and it needs to be understood in full light of that history. Yes, and a bit later I want to come to some of the political sort of ramifications, I suppose, or manifestations of that, but it's a very good point you make that um, the, the, those early decisions set the scene for and the absence of those agreements set the scene for where we are today and a whole series of events that occurred since. We know that um, in 1778, uh, we get the first fleet arriving, 1788, sorry, we get the first fleet arriving. Um, in between those two dates, I suppose, you've seen the, um, what happened in the US in 1776 and the, and, and the, the, uh, the Brits lose, lose control of that continent. I wonder if that affected the attitude of uh, the, the first fleet and the country of the first fleet as distinct from those slightly more um, lofty aspirations earlier on? Maybe. Um, it's, I mean, it's an interesting point because what you do see in the archives is this kind of chaos that kind of rolls out across the continent and um, the Crown was very much about not just managing those lands and they were cognizant of Aboriginal people being on those lands but of um, new settlers doing what they want and the Crown not being able to control that, which is where you see the development of property law and um, land law in those really early colonial periods. Um, I suppose in some ways it speaks to what we call today as the rule of law. So so, so maybe it did. I, I just can't give you a definitive answer, of course. Yes, it's hard, hard hard to know that, but it, 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 certainly the the different attitude, the, the more aggressive attitude. Um, uh, perhaps after Britain's had such a setback, one wonders whether uh, they were prepared to uh, to be as conciliatory. Either way, I mean, concil conciliation was in fact part of their policy. I think uh, the governors in New South Wales were instructed to conciliate. Whether that happened or not, did it? I mean, it, there it was happened a, there in was parts. There was a brief period of conciliation. I, I would argue um but it was very brief before it gave way to fighting as you know aboriginal people realized these mob weren't leaving and and the arrivals realized that the mob weren't leaving their lands 
And so it very quickly, consideration that is abandoning, was very that, brief. That is sort of evacuating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It was very brief period. I mean, it's a, it, it's it's regarded as a very very brief period. And you talk about it in there. Uh, you you characterise some of the problems that emerge in that early relationship, and part of it, which actually when we think about it is obvious, which is a a massive language barrier, and so they can't really communicate with each other. And the other part of it is that these white settlers have arrived and taken land and started putting up structures and 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 you know they're there for the for good kind of thing and the aboriginal people who are who they are interacting with with whom they can't have sophisticated conversations because they don't share a language have a and I'm I'm taking this from your book right they have a different understanding of the relationship they have so there's a misunderstanding um the Aboriginal people are thinking this is a reciprocal arrangement. You're having some of the land. Um, we, sh- you know, we're sharing. The white settlers are thinking you're stealing our food. You're stealing our goods, and so they're shooting them and various other things. Yeah, that, that's that's right. And I think perhaps the colonisers could have made more of an effort to learn the language, to negotiate. But it was easier not to. It was easier to take by force, and that's of course what happened. And if you compare that again to other countries, New Zealand and the like, it was harder to perhaps to take things by force. They were forced to negotiate more often. They entered into treaties. Um, not saying the treaties were just, very often they weren't. But there are reasons colonisation played out the way it did in Australia, but it laid the seeds for great injustices because in the end there was no there was no coming together, there was no attempt to negotiate. And right through to the creation of the Australian nation in 1901. There was a great silence there and a, a treatment of our first peoples in ways that I think made the settlers feel as if you know, they didn't deserve or shouldn't be given the same rights and protections. You know, it made it easier to treat them in the way that they did. And the settlers were in fact given, uh, given authority, given to believe that they were able to take direct action against the Aboriginal population uh, I think in 1816, Governor Macquarie uh, effectively issues a proclamation that makes retributive violence against uh, Aboriginal Aboriginal people who won't cooperate. Uh, Legitimised it, is that correct? Yeah, and and what you have is you have this concept of the rule of law coming from Britain, but it's an equal rule of law. It's not a rule of law that says fair and the same rules for everyone. There are very clearly different rules that apply to the First Peoples and the treatment, the violence that could be meted out. If just even just the fact the law was never enforced um, in these areas, things could happen knowing that the authorities were unlikely to intervene. And so it's all very convenient in a sense because it facilitated colonisation, the development of pastoral um, lands and the like. And they were able to do it in ways that, you know, today we look back and certainly for me there's a sense of shame as to what happened and the question about what we are going to do about it. Um, because our country was formed on those practices. And, of course, that led to what what we now talk... You, you describe it in the book, uh, Megan, as the killing times or the frontier wars, uh, Those that, that interaction between Indigenous peoples and the settlers, which, which result in quite widespread horrendous violence um, and killing people for the, for, for, for the political and economic purpose of taking their land. Yeah, well, I mean, I think most people accept today that the political economy of the state, of the creation of the Australian state, was killing. I mean, you needed to move 
these people off lands that were needed to grow pastoral economies, etc., and they weren't moving. And so that's a really significant feature of the early Australian economy. And I think, you know, George is right. It was um, a violation of what we think um, and what we often as far as being something we're proud of, the rule of law in Australia. But when you look at the kind of as the decades move on, the debates in the archives on the massacres, you start to see a more nuanced appreciation, maybe not appreciation, but a nuanced discussion about the killings and the massacres, about whether they are within the rule of law. And there are editorials and newspapers that debate this, whether they're within the rule of law because Aboriginal people were aliens at the time and not British citizens or citizens of the British Crown and therefore international humanitarian rules apply and it's, it's, it's like a war with external parties or whether Aboriginal people were actually citizens or members of the British Empire and therefore um, the killings um, and the massacres were actually unlawful and fell outside of what people regarded as a rule of law. It's a it's an extraordinary period of Australian history and one that's not quite mapped out yet and certainly one that's not well known um, throughout the Australian community. It isn't well known because it's been largely not talked about for so long and it is only really now that um, these terms, the frontier wars, for example, are widely accepted and have any sort of, you know, that there's a sort of a general public grasp of the concept. I mean, th- there was just so long where even when, when, when you would hear the term frontier wars raised, there were doubts about this because the records were, uh, were uh, not reliable in some cases. Uh, the accounts were contested. The history that most of the people in this room would have been taught went nowhere near it. So, I mean, Henry Reynolds knows this because every panel I'm on with him, I contest this with him and that is obviously his book, Why Weren't We Told, is very prominent in the Australian discourse around this but we were were told. It's captured in a lot of the parliamentary um, reports of colonial parliaments, discussions, debates and reports into the killings and reprisals and, and... same in the post-Federation period in multiple jurisdictions, we, we did know. I think we tell ourselves narratives that allow us to kind of think that it was a messy frontier period and, you know, who knows, you know, did it really happen? But actually there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it did. Well, I don't think I'm suggesting that it didn't. No, I'm not saying you didn't. I'm saying that like when you talk about the archives, actually there's plenty of evidence there to suggest it happened. I accept that, but I think my point was about what was generally taught in schools, for example, uh, about the history of the country. It was it was um, conquest by yeah. explorers I mean, and but I, but taming I think those narratives help us not teach the story is yes. what I was getting at. When we tell ourselves, you know, we, we talk about Stanner and we talk about Reynolds and we tell ourselves these myths and these narratives that, you know, how could we have known it didn't happen? That that just aids it not being taught. I think that's right. It's less why didn't we know as opposed to why didn't we act. 
um, because, yes, prominent people knew these things. But I, I take your point about the schools. I've got a couple of kids uh, still in high school and, you know, the level of information they're given is appallingly low. Well, even now? These, even now, very, it's very poor. And in primary school, it still typically starts with, a stra- with Captain Cook. You go through the explorers. And I, I was actually shocked that my daughter still, that's still the education that they're getting. This is just two years ago when she was in primary school. Starts with the explorers. Then they do a quick week uh, on Indigenous issues. But that's sort of the bit the teacher finds very hard to fit into the narrative because it's not clear how Indigenous history fits with explorers. And you're trying to not shoot well in some in. cases, um, and <laughs> it really opened my eyes just how far we have to go within schools. Um, because Meaden's point's a really strong one. Yes, people in power knew what was going on, but did not act. But gener- generation after generation, we're failing. I think within the education system and just telling truth, giving basic information, and um, yeah, I, I think again there's a there's a really big problem there when it comes to perpetuating this silence by not just giving our kids information about what actually happened yeah i couldn't agree more i mean i think you know the plastic brains of children when you know we we know every religion there is works on the basis of inculcating children's minds with you know the stories because that's when thing beliefs are embedded and uh, you carry them for your whole lives well, and it's and also in we our see official... a real resistance from people to take on some of these alternative facts if I, I don't mean that in the literal sense of course but to take on facts that challenge their understanding of australia um there's a real reluctance, and we see it playing out very much at the moment. You do, and, and and still particularly in schools, there's a veneration of Captain Cook in particular, and that's been there for a long, long time. And I, I agree with what you say. There's a there's a way of looking at the world that we teach our kids at a young age, and other histories don't fit easily within that, but it's also the official documents. I mean, the Constitution itself, it, it begins, um, not in a really exciting way, I'd have to say. The American Constitution begins, we the people. Um, our constitution begins with that immortal word, whereas. Yeah. Um, not quite as exciting, but it does say whereas, and it talks about the people of the colonies. It talks about the British crown. It talks about uniting in an indissoluble federal commonwealth. And that's the rule book of the nation that introduces who we are and where we came from. But there's not one iota of a mention of anything but that British history. And again, I mean, that's that's the official document of the nation, and so that's perpetuating this, and there are many examples of this. So it's, it's no surprise that this history is, I'm not even sure it's suppressed, it's more it's just it's not part of the narrative. It's just not part of the conversation, actually, how this, how this country was formed. Well, we could learn about the Constitution, whereas we could do something else, and I suppose that's what often happens. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was reading it just the other day. Um, I think the first couple of pars actually begin with whereas, maybe even the first three. They were pretty excited by that word um, in the 1890s. And, uh, and look, the other thing is it, uh, it's not a document that you'd read for very long anyway, I'd have to say. I mean, Lionel Murphy, a former High Court judge and Attorney General, said he always kept a copy of the Constitution by his bedside. He was an insomniac at times, and uh, he said there was no document more guaranteed to get him to sleep. But that, again, is, is part of the history of this, that there is a real history to be told. And it's either by putting people to sleep or just the silence that we just as a nation don't engage with the true story of the nation. And um, and again, that's what this referendum is about in part, is actually having a voice, being heard, coming to grips with who we are. But the voice sits on top of all of this history. Yeah. And again, that's what the book is trying to explore. Yeah, and it seems to have to cut through what you were saying before, George. It seems to have to cut through a kind of a, a myth about the Australian Constitution that's not actually about, you know, that doesn't actually relate to the Australian Constitution. It might relate to the US one, 
you know, there, there's a sort of sense that some people have. In fact, it it reminds me that you know, you know, we often hear that story that when kids uh, are asked, you know, how do you call the police, and they say dial nine one one, you know, which is the, the what you do in America. Um, and there's a real kind of sense about this debate that that we're talking about tinkering with you know our basic rights um, in the way that the American Constitution is understood to protect basic rights. It's a really interesting and sort of acrid debate in a way, Megan, because the Constitution might be viewed, at least notionally by people, to be that kind of baseline that protects civil rights, uh, human rights. But it's not been that for Aboriginal people, has it? Well, not our constitution. No, it hasn't because it didn't mention them. No, I mean, we weren't mentioned and it wasn't really corrected till 1967. And a big part of the voice referendum, of course, is to do something more than just correct an exclusion, and that is to empower people. But um, it's it's not a constitution that served First Nations people well. That's not a history either. I mean, obviously we we talk about it in the book. It's not a history that's well understood by Australians and I see that right now as I go out on the ground in regional visits where Australians don't understand the race power, they don't understand the history of Aboriginal people and their exclusion from the constitutional system. So that kind of very poor civics education, but especially when it comes to Aboriginal people is really problematic because Australians are actually rocking up to many events saying that the country, the country's constitution is built on equality and the rule of law and they don't seem to understand the history of the constitution in relation to that. And, and I mean, to be explicit, it was designed, the constitution was written to enable the rights of certain people to be infringed. It's very, it's very clear that's what it was there, and others to be protected, particularly the, the British. It was there to protect their rights, but as Megan has suggested, there are powers there still to this day, the racist power being the most prominent, which was put there to enable our federal parliament to enact racially discriminatory laws. And it's crystal clear from the debates. I mean, Edmund Barton, our first prime minister, in talking about the racist power, said that the Commonwealth Parliament needed this power, and I, I quote, the language is offensive, but... It's, it explains the reasoning. It was there so the Commonwealth can pass laws for the coloured and inferior races in the Commonwealth. And that power is still in the Constitution. Uh, one case I did, the Hindmarsh Island Bridge case, we had to use those words because the High Court said, why is this power in the Constitution? That's why. Um, there's also another clause, Section 25, which still recognises that states can stop people voting on the basis of their race. I don't know any other Constitution in the world that still has clauses designed to permit racial discrimination as our constitution does. And so again, with this debate, when people talk a bit about introducing race into the constitution, well, it's there and we need the voice to counter it um, because the constitution was not designed for equality. It was actually designed particularly to allow discrimination against certain peoples. But that was the era, that was the 1890s. That was the thinking at the time. Why is it so hard to get that point across? There are so that there is such a persistent critique that we see. I see it on social media all the time. That's introducing race to a to an otherwise race blind constitution, you know, perfectly equal constitution, and that, that the voice introduces race. I mean, you've just given a, a perfect refutation of it. But why is that so hard to get across to the general public? Is it because it's an arcane legal concept? 
I think one of the problems that we've found quite late in the campaign, Pat, is that poor civics has really been a major problem. And despite the government saying they were going to run a civics campaign, they haven't run that. And that's really lacking. Um, and so that feeds into the next part, which is a very low level of knowledge about the Australian Constitution and what it actually does, especially in relation to the discriminatory provisions and the fact that the Australian Constitution was imbued with racial discrimination from day one. I mean, it's a fundamental part of our history, right? Mm -hmm. It's something you need to talk about as a nation. Um, I don't know, George. I, I, I agree, Megan. I think a lot of it is also, and civics is, is the key, and these challenging ideas cut against the grain of what Australians want to feel about their constitution and their country. I mean, it is uncomfortable to be told, in fact, that in this rule book of the nation, it's got at its heart the idea of racial differentiation and racial discrimination. And we've been told over many years we can be relaxed and comfortable. We can, you know, these things weren't talked about. So to bring them to the surface is discomforting and, you know, a bit shocking to some people. And certainly having done many, many community events, it's so often people come up and say, that just can't be true. It just can't be true that we've got something like this clause in our constitution. It's not who we are. It, it just... It just cuts against who I see us as being as a nation and our values. And it does. They're absolutely right. But it is there. But it's been easier just to not talk about these things and just to push them in the background than it has been to bring them to the foreground. But when it comes to a campaign like this, when you've got a campaign built upon not just decades, but you know a century or more of you know, comfort and misunderstanding, it's really hard to cut through. And people will often revert to what they see as comfortable, easy positions, which is this is a great country. We don't believe in racial discrimination. We've got a fair constitution and everyone gets a fair go. And if that's the case, you know, it's if you really believe that, it's hard to cut against that. Yeah, well, I suppose that goes back to what we were talking about before. We, we established these things in the minds of our of our um our children, we, we're raised to be, you know, it, it, we're supposedly in an egalitarian country. Uh, this is one of our defining virtues. The facts that we've just been discussing show that's not the case. But as you say, people are relatively uncomfortable about confronting that and having to acknowledge that to an extent, you know, they've been living under a kind of a lie. I and mean, it's even a little more complex because, of course, for many people, it is that country. So for many Australians, this is the country of opportunity and a fair go. And the challenging bit for them is to realise it's not that it's not true for everyone and but, to open your eyes and your heart to the fact that there are many people that's not true, but it, it's easy to believe something when it's your own experience. Yeah, I suppose. I'm not going to cut people that sort of break, though. I mean, uh, the you know, if people are uh, clearly discriminated against, clearly excluded, um, I think it's fair to say that you're not living in an egalitarian society and i think it's you know it's just part of the that sort of very durable myth that's been durable even against observable fact i think it is but it's also really effective in australia think of the refugee debate sovereign borders yeah if you just keep it out of the media and out of people's eyes people are very happy to believe there's nothing going on they need to go to the streets or worry about mm. you know if you can if you can silence something even if people really know that there's a problem there they're sort of happy not to know about it and I think that's what we've seen in this area for a long time. It's very effective politically, even though we should know better. No, I was just going to say, Pat and I were um, talking at an event on Friday night in Bethania, which is in Logan City in southeast Queensland. 
and a huge group, Pat, of the Gold Coast Afghan community had come up to hear us speak and they got up at the end to say, you know, we arrived here, some of us 30 years ago through our parents, some of us 10 years ago, and we've been given a fair go. Our children have been given all of this opportunity and we're saying to you tonight, this this community of First Nations peoples who have been here for 60,000 years, they deserve a fair go. And the crowd applauded, Pat, but it was an extraordinary thing to hear even our recent arrivals stand up and say, actually, our kids have had a fair go. You know, we, we can see the discrimination. We can see the disadvantage. You know, this is just one thing we can do as a nation and let's support it. And Pat and I were just, yeah, blown away by that and the support and the huge numbers of our multicultural brothers and sisters. But, yeah, they they all talk to that point about the opportunities they've been given that um, don't, necessarily translate to our community it's so telling isn't it i mean malcolm turnbull used to be very fond of saying we're the most successful multicultural nation in the world but there's an irony there that that a culture that pre-existed all of those uh, and continues and which is our indigenous culture was so systemically and 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 persistently cut out of that and remains excluded in a, in a constitutional sense Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Can I just take you back, Megan, just for a sec to the point you made about civics education, the expectation the government was going to run a civics program. Has there been, can you just sort of expand on that? Has there been just, what, the non-delivery of something that you understood I, to be? I think I think when they meant civics, they meant a, a basic ad about the voice is what I think they meant. I thought it was going to be civics. That, by the way. Um, they ran a voice ad that was about the fundamentals of the voice or at least where people could go to look for information. Um, they obviously don't run it anymore since the bill was passed, but we were told it was going to be a civics program and it's not a civics program. I'm at a loss to understand what has happened to public education and public um, uh, information programs. When you think about even the pandemic, you know, the absence of proper health messaging through that and we now see it again it's it's astonishing the uh, just the failure to communicate with the broader uh, community and establish a shared understanding of what it is that we all face together yeah and even in relation to the pamphlets just the fact that most australians will open that pamphlet and not know it's fact-checked 
Yeah. You know, and it's got the AEC stamp on it and people will think it's factual information. I'm talking about the no case, of course. <laughs> and that's right. And that's that's the only official bit of information. That's $10.6 million that the government pays pays for that. And you would absolutely assume it was accurate. That's the, the power of that document. But um, you can lie. You can make stuff up. There's no penalty. There's no requirement for it to be true. And unfortunately, in these sort of debates, and this is true referendum after referendum, is lies are often the most effective and most influential arguments you can make. And people can't can't tell the difference. They can't tell fact from fiction because so few people have got the basic knowledge. So mm. the fact that's the primary form of communication says a lot, I think, about just how hard it is in this debate to cut through with um, you know accurate information so people can make their mind up. Again, that's what the book's about in a sense. It's sort of pretty 20th century to write a book as opposed to hitting TikTok. Um, but we wrote a book because there's a long story here um, and that's what's missing it's that people need to know the background, the why that we're at this moment, because it, there is no easy and short answer. It's it's a long history. It is. One of the things I was struck by in the book, uh, the way you you go through it, is the uh, because there is you know there's that history we talked about, that very early history of white settlement and and um, and a number of things, you know, the creation of the constitution, and it's all very um, uh, informative. And even some of the recent history that I think we forget is really quite striking. One of the things that's in there that I think uh, all of you here might find, or many of you here might find striking, is this. And I'm going to sort of put it to you as a bit of a quiz question. I wonder if you can tell me who actually said this, and perhaps even when. Australia is a blessed country. Our climate, our land, our people, our institutions rightly make us the envy of the earth, except for one thing. We have never fully made peace with the first Australians. This is the stain on our soul that Prime Minister Keating so movingly evoked at Redfern 21 years ago. We have no. We have to acknowledge that pre 1788. Sorry, we have to acknowledge that pre 1788, this land was as Aboriginal then as it is Australian now. Until we have acknowledged that, we will not. Sorry, we will be an incomplete nation and a torn people. Does anyone know who said that? <laughs> Gary Quinlan knows. Uh, Tony Abbott, correct, in 2015. And I think that shows just what a, a kind of a, an undulating ride this has been and the extent to which politics has now had such an impact on the positioning we see in this voice that not that many years ago a, a, a well-known ultra-conservative leader of the current coalition um, had taken that position, was citing with some level of admiration the Redfern speech from a Labor Prime Minister, was talking about that level of understanding. And we now see the coalition where it is today where in November of last year David Littleproud declared before most of the information was even settled that the Nationals would be voting against The Voice it was really only a matter of process, really, for the Liberals to follow suit, the LNP in Queensland being the Nats and the Libs together. I mean, it struck me even at the time that uh, Dutton's room to manoeuvre, should he have wanted it, was circumscribed very strongly at that point, and we've seen the rhetoric since. So I just wonder, Megan, if you can kind of 
talk to that, you know, that the, the, why you've laid out that history in the book and how, how we've got to where we've come in the last couple of years in the last few months. I have a lot to say about Abbott. Um, I, I think one of the problems, and we mentioned it in the book very early on, was the notion of recognition in terms of the two major parties um, at that national level was more coalescing around the idea of acknowledgement, so the dictionary meaning of recognition, as opposed to anything substantive. And I think that's probably where that sentiment came from. I mean, I can't remember what year that was, but he said a lot of things coming into 2015. Office. Yeah. 2015 is the turning point where Aboriginal people put on the table to him that we would not acknowledge, we would not accept symbolism. And Anipad put out a very powerful press release today saying to Dutton he's rewriting history about this. Um, in 2015 we went to Abbott and said we won't accept a statement of recognition, our people reject that, you need a new process to go out and ask communities what they want, which is why the Referendum Council was set up. Um, can I just make one more point yeah, about bombings. Tony? Well, I don't, actually don't know him but I'll just call him Tony. Um, is that one of the reasons that the voice to parliament um, became the primary reform when people accept, expected things like treaty, et cetera, was because of Tony Abbott's policy, the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. It is the primary sole policy that decimated the Aboriginal sector and brought it to its knees and when Pat and I went out to do our work, we found it very difficult because people were very angry about the fact that they'd lost, lost services and programs and policies that they used to run because when Abbott came in, he sliced all of the funding right across all of the departments and put it into one bucket that he called the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. And some of that money actually went to groups that were, in fact, acting against Aboriginal interests. Uh, so much of the money went to non-Indigenous entities and the Australian National Audit Office. So the mob told us in the meetings things that had happened to them and it was all validated by the ANAO that said in the first iteration over 80% of that money went to non-Indigenous organisations and a vast proportion of that money went to corporates and not-for-profits to fund their reconciliation action plans. So you saw mass unemployment, you saw the disestablishment or disestablishment of Aboriginal um, community control and other mechanisms within communities. In, in towns like Yarrabah, you had um, who used to deliver their own services to their own people. You had the money going to save the children who were driving from Cairns to Yarrabah and deliver services that they delivered for decades. It was a really humiliating and undignified process for so many of our people. And what the ANAO found, which is what I found so galling about little proud every time he stands up and says we don't want more bureaucracy in Canberra, the ANAO found that under the eight years of that LNP, um, red tape increased. So bureaucracy increased under their watch. And I just found it extraordinary, especially for Little Proud, given that a National Party person held that position for so long, that they could make that judgment based on zero information about what the voice was. And he went out very early to say no. Um, so a lot of the voice came from the policies 
of the last eight years and the fact that our people were rendered voiceless and powerless in a system where the ministers operated on a kind of, you know, Florentine patronage basis, you know. You've got to be mates with the ministers. You've got to be in with the Liberal Party to to get any traction in terms of your organisations, and that's never been how Aboriginal affairs has functioned um, in this country. And so I find it really, I saw him on the Today Show today and I just thought it's extraordinary to me that the media never picks him up on this stuff, that the whole point of this constitutionalised voice is partly because of the policies that Abbott put in place, but he he gets to do all of these interviews and there's zero corporate knowledge in the mainstream media to push back on the things that he's saying. Yep. Yes, I think there are some very valid criticisms to make of the way media have been. Oh, not you, though. <laughs> That's very kind. Um, this, I mean, I suppose in a way what you're saying also, and I, I made this point a second ago, but um, in terms of the, the position that Little Proud took, when we, w- where we can see the, the, the coalition is now and what effect that has had on this whole debate, we can now see that it was kind of written last year, that that was where they were always going. Well, after the election, you know, most people who study elections can see there's no pathway back for them for the next election. They're they're completely obliterated in the metros and they've been pushed well out into regional areas. Um, They don't hold a seat in any of the major cities. I was having a good yarn to George Megalogenis about it this morning. Um, I think uh, it's four out of 44 uh, metropolitan seats, inner metropolitan seats. And so they, there's no pathway back, but as Phil Curry put in the Fin Review this weekend, one of the LNP politicians texted him saying, this is our strategy, this is our pathway back. Not to, they won't win government, but to get themselves in a winnable position. Um, we saw articles in the City Morning Herald last week saying corporates and people are abandoning them, they have no money because they stand for nothing. And their sole job now is to destroy this. And Arnie Pat sitting here, you know, we worked really hard for this reform. Our people have worked really hard for this reform. We designed a really incredible incredible process to get our people to a point of consensus, which has never happened. We got our people there. This is what our people say will make a difference to their lives and be transformative. Constitutions Written constitutions do provide the material conditions for humans to flourish. That is what we are trying to do with this reform is to bring a threshold to our people of a dignified human life and their sole job is to destroy this. Their sole job is that we wake up on October the 15th, we're hearing, and everything is the same. Their sole job is to get an endorsement from the Australian people for the status quo. And for me, that's repugnant. Can I just, while we're about to take a question, ask you this, uh, Megan. The importance, uh, you were just going to this before, but the importance of the voice in the Constitution described as meaningful recognition or substantive recognition 
Why is that so important? And can I say as you, as you go to that, that I particularly like the, the word you use in the book where you describe a voice as being protected by the Constitution. I liked that, that framing because it, it's not one I've heard in, in, in other places and I think it actually um, very well explains. It's, sort of, it's imbued with, with, with all of the history of Aboriginal organisations that have come and gone and been subject to political women. It really addresses that, and I think it's a, a word that should be used more to explain why the voice needs to be in the Constitution. But if you could just go to that, that point about meaningful um, recognition. So it's a little-known um, fact that Annie Pat trends on TikTok, and <laughs> there's a very famous Twitter and um, TikTok that Pat did where she talks about the fact that we are Aboriginal affairs is an ideological football game with no rules and that a part of the voice is to elevate us out of the realm of retail Australian politics and, and protect us from that. Aunty Pat also says every three years we've got to trudge down to Canberra and justify who we are, justify our existence, justify our humanity and explain to the next new minister, the new government, who we are, where we come from, the funding we've had before, why we need it again. And it's a really humiliating experience for our people. Um, and so that's what protected by the Constitution means. It means Australians, and, and the Constitution is a document that speaks to principle. And we're asking Australians to agree to the principle that when laws and policies are made about us, that we're at the table and that we can make constitutional representations to entities who have no obligation to respond, who have no obligation to read, who have no obligation to implement, but we have the constitutional capacity to say what we think is right, what we think should be focused on, and that we get to publish those constitutional representations so they're transparent and all of Australia who voted yes can see what we're, we are saying is the priority, what we are saying should be worked on, so Australians can, can match that with the inaction or we hope that that will end um, of the parliament and the bureaucracy when it comes to our matters. The, the word meaningful I think we used because of the kind of bureaucratic and political technicality, technicality around the word recognition. The re recognition might have a dictionary meaning of acknowledgement, but it needs to be meaningful to people in their regions. So that when we did the broom dialogue, for example, people were talking about sealed roads. That doesn't, and I appreciate that's not necessarily the federal government's responsibility, but what we wanted to draw out of people is what does it mean? What does meaningful recognition mean? to you in your region and we are a very kind of vast continent and most Australians or I hope a lot of Australians understand that the way bureaucracy works is they only like a one-size-fits-all approach and that doesn't work in relation to our communities. And so when we walked people through that process over two years, our, our key driving force was what is meaningful to you don't think about what the government will accept or not accept. Think about what is meaningful to you in your, in your region. And through all of that work, that's how we landed on The Voice.
And that's where we'll leave this special live episode of Democracy Sausage from the ANU. Until next week, bye for now. Mm-hmm.